Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet em, greet em, treat em, and street em. Today's date is April 12, 2018, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Love Will Tear Us Apart, Diagnostic Challenges of Aortic Dissection. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Corey Heinz. Corey is an emergency physician in Roanoke, Virginia. He is also the CME editor for Academic Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to the SGM, Corey. Thanks, Ken. As always, it's great to be here. Well, do you have anything new and exciting to update us on before we just jump right into a case? Well, nothing too exciting is going on. It's been kind of a long winter for us, but spring has finally arrived here in Virginia. On Monday, it snowed when I was riding my bike up on the parkway, and today it's 80 degrees. That's in Fahrenheit, you guys. Thank you for converting for the rest of the world. But I'd like to give a shout out to Ross Fisher the presentation Jedi Master, for suggesting the excellent theme music for this episode. It's from the band Joy Division, and thank you again very much, Ross. This song has been stuck in my head for days now. All right, Corey, give us a case. All right, Ken, well, you are working in the emergency department caring for a 65-year-old man with sharp chest pain radiating to the back. His blood pressure is elevated, and his pain was sudden in onset. His test x-ray is normal, and there's no sign of asymmetric pulses. The EKG and laboratory tests are normal. You're wondering if you need to order a CT angiogram to rule out an aortic dissection. Well, aortic dissection is a rare but deadly disease, which can confound emergency physicians' diagnostic abilities. Some estimates are that up to 38% of cases are initially missed. Mortality? Oh, it can be up to 40% in the acute phase and 70% by two weeks. Unfortunately, the most common feature of aortic dissection is pain in the chest, back, and or the abdomen. But as I said, pain is so prevalent and aortic dissection is so rare that diagnosing aortic dissection becomes difficult. Data is lacking on predictive value of clinical features. Much of the prior literature focuses on patients already diagnosed with aortic dissection. Well, there are two clinical prediction tools for the diagnosis of aortic dissection. One is from the American Heart Association called the Aortic Dissection Detection Risk Score. Our good friend over at Rebel EM, Salim, put together a nice table showing the score that we will include in the show notes. If any one of the predisposing conditions pain features or physical exam findings are positive, you add one point to the score. The other is a simpler three-variable rule called the von Kottelich score. I'm pretty sure you made me say that first, Ken. I did. This tool includes aortic pain, immediate onset tearing or ripping pain, mediastinal or aortic widening on the chest x-ray, or blood pressure and pulse differential. The American College of Emergency Physicians ASAP, published a guideline in 2015 for the diagnosis of acute aortic dissection. ASAP gives a level C recommendation for the use of existing clinical decision tools. That recommendation is, in an attempt to identify patients at very low risk for acute, non-traumatic thoracic aortic dissection, do not use existing clinical decision rules alone. The decision to pursue further workup for acute, non-traumatic aortic dissection should be at the discretion of the treating physician. Thanks, ASEP. Okay, Corey, give us the clinical question. What is the diagnostic accuracy in aortic dissection of various clinical features, such as the history and physical, imaging tests, and clinical decision instruments? And what's the reference? 
Olay et al. Clinical Examination for Acute Aortic Dissection, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis in Academic Emergency Medicine, April 2018. All right, let's run through the PICO. What was the population? These were adult patients presenting to the emergency department with suspected acute aortic dissection in whom testing, criterion standard, and results of testing were all available. And what was the intervention? Well, this was a review of diagnostic accuracy in aortic dissection, so no interventions were performed, and therefore there was no comparison. And how about the outcome? The diagnostic accuracy of various tests, features of aortic dissection, and clinical decision instruments, such as sensitivity, specificity, and likelihood ratios. Well... SGMers, this is an SGEM hop. So we have the lead author on the show. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Robert Olay. Robert is a practicing emergency medicine physician and director of research for emergency medicine at Health Science North in Sudbury, Ontario. His research program focuses on improving recognition and reducing time to treatment of acute aortic dissection. He's currently working on the Canadian practice guidelines for the diagnosis of acute aortic dissection in the emergency department. Welcome to the SGM, Robert. Thanks very much, Ken. I am really excited to be talking to you guys. So, Robert, what got you interested in this area of research? Well, it was a while ago as I was a junior resident, and I saw a fellow who had some vague flank pain. He'd been seen in two other emergency departments, and he'd had a CT renal colic protocol. I wanted to send him home, and my staff, in her infinite wisdom, wanted to get a CTA to rule out a dissection. Now, I asked her why, and she said, well, you need to think about a dissection in someone with unexplained pain. I thought she was a little bit crazy, but turns out the guy had an absolutely massive dissection right down into his iliacs. Now, what the heck do I do with that? Am I scanning everybody with unexplained pain? And so I asked a lot of the staff I was working with, and no one could really give me a straight answer on who we should work up or who we should send home. I heard a lot of, well, you just have a feeling. And so being in Ottawa, I wondered whether a clinical prediction tool uh, could actually help us. Oh, I'm so glad you said tool. So you get to work with people, amazing people like Jeff Perry, and of course, that legend of emergency medicine, Ian Steele, why have you not yet published the Ottawa Acute Aortic Decision Tool? Well, it's true. I've got a chance to, to train and learn from some incredible people while I was in Ottawa. And I've been lucky enough to have Jeff Perry as my mentor since I started residency. But the problem is, is that the auto rules have been derived in a large multi-center prospective cohort studies. And the issue with dissection is that in order for you to even recruit enough cases to develop a rule, you probably need to have a population close to 200,000. And this would take a huge amount of time and a lot of money. And it would probably annoy a lot of eMERGE docs because they have to fill out a lot of study forms. The classic way is probably not going to work for dissection. So we do need a more effective way to standardize our clinical assessments. And this is what I'm working on right now. Well, excellent. Moving into what we're going to talk about on today's podcast, can you give us the conclusions to your systematic review and meta-analysis on the diagnostic accuracy of, of aortic dissection? Yep. Yeah, so the suspicion for acute aortic dissection should be raised with hypotension, pulse, or neurological deficit. And conversely, a low American Heart Association acute aortic dissection detection risk score decreases your suspicion. 
But clinical gestalt informed by high and low risk features together with an absence of an alternative diagnosis should drive your investigations for acute aortic dissection. Well, thanks, Robert. Now you get to sit back and we will go through a quality checklist and the key results, and then we're going to bring you back to talk nerdy. So, Corey, let's go through that quality checklist, and this one's for systematic reviews of diagnostic studies. And the first question is, the diagnostic question, is it clinically relevant with an established criterion? Yes, it is, Ken. The search strategy for studies, was it detailed and exhaustive? Yes, they included non-English language and the gray literature. The methodological quality of the primary studies were assessed for common forms of diagnostic research bias. Yes, they used the Quadus tool and the Cochrane Collaboration Risk of Bias table. The assessment of studies was reproducible. Yes. There was low heterogeneity for estimates of sensitivity or specificity. Uh, unfortunately not. And the final question, the summary diagnostic accuracy is sufficiently precise to improve upon existing clinical decision-making models. In part due to the answer to number five, the answer to this has to be no as well. All right, let's go through the key results. They did a really good search, and they found close to 800 abstracts. 60 met the eligibility criteria. Nine studies were included in the review. The overall quality was considered acceptable, but there was moderate to high heterogeneity. What was the big key result? No individual risk factors, historical features, physical exam findings, or basic investigations can rule in or out aortic dissection. Clinical decision instruments show some potential in improving diagnostic accuracy, but are not ready for prime time. And I'll list the various risk factors, historical features, physical examination, basic investigations, and clinical decision tools. I'll list all those positive and negative likelihood ratios and sensitivity, so you'll get all that data on the blog. But you know what? I like to talk nerdy. So, Corey, let's bring Robert back and ask him some questions about this systematic review and meta-analysis. Sounds good to me, Ken. Let's start with the search, because this is really important for an effective review and meta-analysis. You guys did a great search. It was interesting to see that four of the nine articles included weren't found on your initial search, but by reviewing references of the ones that were. This emphasizes the importance of not just doing an electronic database search, but also having a research librarian, hand-searching references, and looking for the gray literature. Do you think there may have been other missed studies? Thanks, Corey. Yeah, I agree. A librarian-assisted search strategy is key, but it's only part of your systematic search. You need to review the references of any potentially relevant articles and also the gray literature. Yeah, you, you've mentioned this term gray literature. We've mentioned this term gray literature a couple times. Uh, for, the re for the readers or listeners who may not be familiar, can you tell us a little bit about what that means? It's essentially looking for any study which hasn't made it to a full publication. And the reason you're searching for it is sometimes studies that have negative results or not significantly impactful results don't actually make it to publication. So you can potentially bias your results if you're not actually searching for those in addition to what's already being published. 
Yeah, the gray literature, it's a bit of a nebulous term, and people have different definitions. I kind of think of it as, okay, you've got the published literature, but then you've got all the literature from the new researchers, potentially, that only get an abstract presented at a meeting, and then you've got the gray hairs and no hairs that I think you need to reach out to and say, hey, you're an expert in this area. You got anything sitting in your desk drawer or any other things that you could direct us to that we may have missed in our formal search? And that's how I think of the gray literature. So, yeah, we just talked about the, the gray literature and the definition can be confusing. But that being said, I was, I was surprised that we found four articles on the reference search. However, it's always a balance between a sensitive search strategy and the huge number of s studies that you have to review. And we repeated a broader search strategy, which returned a larger number of studies. And within that, we found the papers which we had uh, found on review of the reference search of the included studies. So it's possible, but I think it's unlikely that we miss any relevant papers. Okay, let's move on to the second point, and that's about heterogeneity. So the heterogeneity on some was moderate to high. Can you explain heterogeneity briefly to the SGMers and comment how you think this should impact our interpretation of the results? Yeah, absolutely. So heterogeneity essentially refers to a variation across studies. And so it's either clinical heterogeneity or statistical. And clinical refers to the difference due to a variation in things like the participants, the interventions, or the outcomes. And statistical refers to a variation in the results or the numbers across the studies. So in a meta-analysis, you have to make sure that you're comparing studies that are the same. So the classic thing is comparing apples to apples. So the first thing you have to ask yourself is, are the populations clinically similar? And then if they are, then you assess where the results are very wildly or not. Now, the populations in our included studies, they appear to be similar, I mean, all with a clinical suspicion for aortic dissection and with a similar profile of patients not diagnosed with aortic dissection. So they're probably okay to pool. However, when you look at the results of the individual clinical variables found in each study, they vary a huge amount. Tearing pain had a sensitivity ranging from 2% to 62%. And this results in a large statistical heterogeneity. This makes you nervous that there were systematic differences between the assessments of these clinical variables. And if you pool these, you're going to get a false summary estimate. That can be misleading. So when there was a high statistical heterogeneity, we didn't pool the results, but instead we presented a range. Now, you would think that the true value likely lies somewhere on that range, but we don't know. So therefore, these variables, you got to interpret with caution. But really, the, the point of a systematic review and meta-analysis is not only just to get a more precise estimate. It's assessing why the study results are different, and that's equally as important. Now, there was only a small number of studies which we could uh, look at for each individual clinical variable. So it's difficult to perform any formal analysis uh, exploring reasons for heterogeneity. But just on reading the studies themselves, the biggest issue is that no one describes exactly how they define the particular sign or symptom that's in the study. You don't know whether acute onset pain means that it's onset over one minute or one hour or three hours. And you don't know, is pulse deficit, are they defining it as a complete absence of pulse, or is it just a difference in the character or the volume? 
So we don't know, and, and this likely varied between studies, and this is probably one of the reasons why there was a huge amount of heterogeneity. And this is the main problem with the diagnostic accuracy studies. You've got to define what the variables actually mean so that somebody can take that and then incorporate it into practice. Well, thank you very much because it's. I'm always saying that a systematic review and meta-analysis is only as good as the studies you put into it, but also you have to think about how do those studies compare to each other. So not only the the study itself and what it contains and how good a study it was, but then you're you're combining these studies and really should they be combined? And I loved it when you said apples to apples because I grew up on an apple farm. But I'll let Corey go on with number three. So the third question is partial verification bias. The prevalence of aortic dissection in the included papers ranged from 22% to 76%. These numbers seem higher than clinical practice would tell us when patients presented the emergency department with undifferentiated chest pain. This suggests partial verification bias. Can you explain partial verification bias to the SGMers and how it could impact the sensitivity and specificity? Also, can you comment on how we can apply this in practice considering the bias? I can, yeah, and uh, partial verification bias, depending on the day of the week, is also referred to as verification bias, ascertainment bias, or referral bias. But uh, they're all essentially describing the same thing. So patients who have a positive index test, so in this case, signs and symptoms of aortic dissection, are more likely to get the gold standard. So they're more likely to get a CTA. And only patients who actually get the gold standard are included in the study because you're only going to include people who are ultimately diagnosed with the uh, CTA or have access to that gold standard. This likely increases, falsely so, the sensitivity and decreases the specificity. The biggest issue with uh, all the studies which we uh, found which were, were relevant is that the prevalence ranges from 13% in the literature to 76% of aortic dissection. And like you said, this is way higher than what we see in practice. And looking at uh, the Ottawa Hospital, the prevalence of aortic dissection in all those undergoing CTA is only about 2%. And this is similar to a study done by uh, Lovie et al., which I believe was in the, the U.S. If the study suffers from verification bias and the specificities are artificially lowered, what you can take from that is any variable who has a really high specificity in spite of this, it's likely reliable. So neurodeficit, murmur of aortic insufficiency, and pulse deficit, they likely do have a high specificity, so are useful if present. And on the flip side, severe pain looks like it might have a relatively high sensitivity, but we should be careful about using the absence of severe pain to say that dissection is less likely. All right, Robert, it's time for number four, and this is about the D-dimer, and that has to be the elephant in the room right now. I mean, you did not investigate the diagnostic accuracy of the D-dimer for aortic dissection. Can you explain why you did not address this issue, and also summarize your thoughts on the use of D-dimer for diagnosing aortic dissection? Well, Ken, there's been... I think this, we're up to number four in regards to the meta-analyses that have looked at D-dimer. 
And I felt like including this in the systematic review, it would have been repetitive. And I don't think it would have added anything to the body of evidence. Before we had published this, there was no new studies uh, to change the previous conclusions. It's a, such a controversial topic and people get really heated. Anytime I'm talking about it, and I mentioned D-dimer, there's people that say, well, sure, well, like, why wouldn't we use it? And then there's people that think that we're kicking puppies when we talk about using D-dimer. Like, I think it is potentially useful. I think it's another data point that can help you. People commonly say that its sensitivity is not high enough and the specificity is too low. But... By that logic, we shouldn't be using wide mediastinum on chest X-ray to help us say aortic dissection, likely or unlikely. Like we don't use a normal chest X-ray in isolation to rule out dissection. You use it together with other signs and symptoms. It's another data point that makes up your gestalt and helps you decide whether yes, this is or no, this isn't. Just like in PE, you can't use D-dimer in someone who has a high probability of dissection. And so somebody who sounds like a dissection, you're not getting a D-dimer, you're getting a CTA. The potential role for it is somebody who maybe you don't think this is a dissection, but you have some suspicion. So maybe there's a role in the person who has symptoms less than 24 hours and you're ordering a CTA, but you hate yourself a little for ordering it. You have a low probability, but you're still concerned. Is there any way of defining that population a little bit better uh, some risk for dissection, but not no risk for dissection. And Nazarian et al. in the advised study, which was recently published in the end of 2017, they tried to apply an assessment of pretest probability together with D-dimer. And so they used the uh, acute aortic dissection detection risk score, which just rolls off your tongue, as previously uh, mentioned by Ken there. And they said that all patients with a score less than or equal to one and a negative D-dimer was really unlikely to have a dissection. They only missed 0.6% of cases. The major drawback of this algorithm is that even a patient who has a score of zero still requires a D-dimer to rule out dissection. So it doesn't really help you define this low-risk population. I haven't found any formal reproducible way to define a population that is at some risk versus no risk at all. And this is the issue with endorsing D-dimer for use in general practice. That being said, I do use it. And I think it has similar, if not better quality of evidence than any other sign or symptom that we're using to help risk stratify for dissection. I use D-dimer as another data point in conjunction with my gestalt, with my assessment of all the other signs and symptoms. But if you are going to use it, you got to keep yourself honest. You got to ask yourself, in someone you're considering ordering a D-dimer, number one, do they have a really good story for a dissection? And if they do, don't order a D-dimer, just get a CTA. And the second question you got to ask yourself is that if you don't order a D-dimer, are you scanning this patient anyway? And if the answer to that question is yes, you're going to scan this patient if you didn't have access to a D-dimer then those are the people that potentially you can order a D-dimer to help you save scanning someone who is at lower risk. And I just want to emphasize, you are clearly not endorsing anyone kicking puppies. <laughs> <laughs> well, Robert, thank you. That was a very thorough and very honest discussion of the use or non-use of D-dimer for a dissection. Honestly, just listening to that and 
reading through the show notes. That's a must-listen answer. Okay, so moving on to number five, clinical decision tools. You looked at two clinical decision tools, the American Heart Association Aortic Dissection Detection Risk Score and the Von Kotelich Score. There I go saying it again, Ken. ASEP guidelines only gives a C recommendation for using the clinical decision instruments for the diagnosis of aortic dissection. However, a von Kotelich score has a negative likelihood ratio of 0.07, which could be considered good enough to rule out the condition. Would you recommend using this scoring system? Uh, in short, Corey, no. Um, in order for any rule for aortic dissection to be used in practice, it needs, number one, to be validated, which this rule is not. But I think it's also important that there needs to be an impact analysis or an implementation study. With any rule, there is a real possibility that it will increase resource utilization, so CTUs, without improving sensitivity. I think you can use the components of the rule to inform your clinical impression, but that's about it. All right, Robert, those are our nerdy questions. Do you have anything else you'd like to tell the SGMers about your study or aortic dissection? No, I think the, the take-home point is the study highlights some things which you need to ask. In order to give yourself the best chance, you always have to ask and document the character, the onset, the migration, and the severity of the pain. On physical exam, you have to look, you have to listen, and you have to feel. You got to look and see whether they have marfans. You got to listen for any new murmur, and you got to feel for any pulse asymmetry. And as always, Kent, thanks very much for the opportunity to be talking about the results. Well, thanks for coming on the SGEM. Corey, now you get to comment on the author's conclusions compared to the SGEM's conclusions, and he is still on the line listening. Oh, that's good to know, Ken. We generally agree with the author's conclusions. Can you give us a bottom line then? Diagnosing aortic dissection in an undifferentiated population presenting to the emergency department continues to be a diagnostic challenge. And can you resolve the case you presented? The patient's pain persists and in fact worsens despite medical treatment in the emergency department. You elect to perform a CT angiogram and diagnose him with a descending aortic dissection. So how are you going to take this systematic review and meta-analysis and apply it clinically, Corey? Well, unfortunately, we do not have strong evidence to guide our care in these patients. Various clinical data can increase and decrease the likelihood of an aortic dissection, but not rule it in or out. It will take a combination of a good history followed by a directed physical exam, basic investigations, clinical gestalt, and shared decision-making on how best to proceed. These decisions will all take place in a context that will depend on many factors, such as the patient, physician and resources, the medical legal environment, and others. So what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside? Well, prior to the CT, I tell my patient that his studies looking at acute coronary abnormalities are normal, but his pain is concerning for aortic dissection, or a tear in the big blood vessel coming from his heart. I would like to perform a CT scan to rule out this life-threatening condition. It's time for the Keener Contest, and last week's winner was Dr. Riker Keel, an R1 from Beaumont Hospital in Michigan. Commander Riker knew ergotamine was contraindicated in patients with a history of vascular disease, including hypertension, and carboprost is contraindicated in patients with a history of asthma. What's the Keener question this week, Robert? Uh, who was the first patient to be formally diagnosed on autopsy of having suffered an acute aortic dissection? 
Well, if you know the answer, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. We did actually have a backup question that we thought about using about Dr. DeBakey, you know, of the DeBakey instruments. Can you tell us a little bit about that as a fun fact? Well, DeBakey is the fellow who figured out how best to surgically fix uh, dissection. And interestingly, when he was 92 years old, he actually suffered a dissection and underwent the procedure which he'd actually developed. Wow, it's a real circle of life thing there, isn't it? Isn't life interesting? As Alanis Morissette would say, isn't it ironic? (laughs) (laughs) All right, so there is some other FOMED on this, and I will list those in the show notes. But this is an SGEM hop, so Corey, tell the SGEMers what to do now. Excellent. Now it's your turn, SGEMers. What do you think of this episode? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEM hop. What questions do you have for Robert and his team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. Also, don't forget that those of you who are subscribers to Academic Emergency Medicine can head over to the AEM homepage to get CME credit for this podcast and article. We will put the process on the SGEM blog. And just for a conference update, we're recording this in April, but next month I'm going to be at SAEM in Indianapolis, May 15th to 18th. Are you going, Corey? Unfortunately, I can't make that one. No, we could have hung out, like being not just FOMED friends, but like real life friends. I know. Eventually, we will be in the same city at the same time. But I'm, I'm, I'm actually aiming for it's one of the conferences in Australia or South Africa or somewhere else that I keep seeing you go. Oh, let's go somewhere exotic. Okay. Well, thanks, Robert, for coming on the SGEM and talking about diagnosing aortic dissections. Thanks very much for having me, Ken. Now, I noticed that you have a little bit of a, a little bit of an accent in you. And, you know, you're practicing in northern Ontario in Sudbury. I'm wondering, can you give the SGM tagline in your best merged Canadian A accent combined with your Irish accent? That's brutal, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> I just want you to make sure you insult everybody. Yeah, can, can, you both, uh, can I both offend my wife and my family at the same time? <laughs> uh, the answer to that is yes. As, as men who have done it repeatedly, the answer is yes. I say that remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. <laughs>